1: there seems to be something that happens during a, a psychedelic state that involves our sense of self, our beliefs, the way language functions. And so when psychedelics kind of like temporarily like turn all of that off, one's left with this way of experiencing things in a new, fresh manner. They can look at their lives. They can experience their bodies. The experience has like this quality of being new and different. You walk into a room and the things that you see are filtered through what you
2: expect because you've been training your whole life to see things a certain way. I think what psychedelics do is they just flip that right off. And instead of seeing through the filter that you see through all day, every day that you're awake and alert.
3: That was Brian Pilecki and Nathan Gates on Psychologists Off the Clock.
0: We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health.
4: I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado,
0: and co-author of ACT Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on ACT Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny
3: San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of ACT Metaphors.
0: We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock.
3: We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries, but when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com slash POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. That's zocdoc.com slash potc. zocdoc.com slash potc.
4: Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C
0: to get 5% off your entire order. I am here with Katie Rothfelder, who is our dissemination coordinator, and we thought we'd bring her on because we talk a lot about Praxis, how Praxis sponsors this podcast. They offer online continuing education for professionals, everything from DBT to ACT training to compassion-focused therapy, and Katie's had some personal experience with Praxis that I think would be helpful for you to all learn about.
3: Yeah, Diana, I started out with Stephen Hayes ACT Immersion Program, and that was really my first chance to get, you know,
4: really into ACT. And then since then, I've had these kind of on-demand course
3: opportunities. The one that really sticks out to me is Lou Las Vigato's Feedback Enhanced ACT course. Which was this really beautiful mix of instruction for really difficult act concepts, and then in-depth learning with practice that grew my muscles as a, a brand new
0: clinician so much. So, if you are interested in taking a Praxis course, go ahead and go to our website offtheclockpsych.com, and we have a discount code for you for some of the live courses. Check them out, Praxis Continuing Education.
3: Hey everybody, I'm here with Debbie to introduce today's episode with Brian Pilecki and Nathan Gates, where we talked about the use of psychedelics in psychotherapy. And Debbie and I were just chatting a little bit about how much our own perceptions of psychedelics have changed over time. And this is really one of the reasons I was excited to do this episode. Is you'll hear in the beginning I ask a question about people having this impression that LSD is going to make you jump out a third story window. And my own history is one of having some of these preconceived notions about psychedelics, what they are and what kind of behaviors they cause. And then I listened, I think it was listening to Dax Shepard's podcast, Armchair Expert. He interviewed Michael Pollan about his book, How to Change Your Mind. And I was so intrigued. And so I, I listened to the audiobook and his book indeed did change my mind and it made me feel so much more open-minded. And, and this is really one of the reasons that I wanted to get Brian and Nathan on today. And Debbie, I'm curious a little bit about like your evolution of thinking around psychedelics.
4: Yeah. I mean, I love that you're doing this episode. I think it's a great topic for us on the podcast because it's such a hot topic in our field right now. Everything is really changing in this area. And So I heard a lot of stories about Timothy Leary, who was doing a lot of this sort of over-the-top, you know, psychedelic research at Harvard back in the 60s. And I was in the psychology department at Harvard for grad school decades later, of course. But I heard some stories and he was so fringe and so kind of out there that the stories I heard were not good ones. And Mm -hmm. I think I have had some assumptions all along about that that it was dangerous and, you know, that it wasn't really very credible scientifically. And I even remember hearing quite a while ago about people considering using MDMA for couples to work on their issues and just thinking to myself, like, oh, that just seems like cheating, right? Like people need to do the work on the relationship. They need to work on all their issues and their communication And even now, I think there's a little part of me that's like, it feels like kind of a fast track to getting some results when when you talk about like letting go of ego and that kind of thing. But I think over time, the
3: evidence is really good. It Mm -hmm. helps a lot of people. Well, and maybe it's not so much that it's a way to not do the work, but it's something that actually facilitates doing the work. That's right.
4: Yeah. It seems like it can be really helpful in the the ego attachment or however you want to call it, the conceptualized self, the ego attachment is very hard to move out of on your own. You know, you can mm-hmm. work for a long time and it's just, it's very difficult. And I think having an experience like this can sort of jumpstart it for people. And it's really fascinating to me how so suddenly the field has changed and people are starting to acknowledge more and more this very balanced perspective around it, right? That it's, you know, it has to be done in a particular way, but that it does have therapeutic use that really
3: helps a lot of people. Right. And I'm just so glad that this information is getting out into the mainstream. I mean, again, looking back at my own kind of learning history, I only knew a very small number of people who had ever experimented with these kinds of substances And more of the stories I had heard were about bad trips and, you know, things that were scary and not necessarily positive. And, you know, it was just something I never had any desire to do. It felt so scary to me. And then, you know, when you learn about the importance of set and setting that, well, you can't go into a trip afraid it's going to be a bad trip because then it'll cause you to have a bad trip. And it just felt (laughs) so intimidating. And, you know, since reading Michael Pollan's book and talking to Nate and Brian, and I've attended a couple of their conference panels and workshops about this topic, I have to say I feel so much more open and curious. And, you know, that this is an experience that I would be much more willing to have now that I feel like I'm educated with facts and data and science not just a whole bunch of scary stories.
4: Right, Jill, I mean, we're both about the same age and I just, we were children of the war on drugs era, right? I remember reading Go Ask Alice as a teenager about the, you know, the being slipped LSD and the bad trip and all that kind of thing. And that was my perception of what it was like. And that was, I think that was kind of like a little bit of a
3: brainwashing kind of thing to get us all to be
4: terrified of it, right? We're gonna
3: scare you straight. Right. I mean, they had a literal program called Scared Straight, right? So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I really hope that this episode is educational for folks and opens some minds. Enjoy this episode with Brian Pilecki and Nathan Gates. Hey, everybody. It's Jill here. And I'm really excited about today's episode. I think what we're talking about today is certainly something we've never talked about on Psychologists Off the Clock, but is really cutting edge. So, I have Brian Pilecki and Nathan Gates here with me today, who are both experts in the use of psychedelics for mental health issues. Brian Pilecki is a clinical psychologist at the Portland Psychotherapy Clinic. He specializes in the treatment of anxiety disorders, trauma and PTSD and matters related to the use of psychedelics. He completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University and incorporates acceptance and commitment therapy and mindfulness and meditation into his therapy with clients. He is an active researcher and has published on topics such as anxiety disorders, mindfulness, and the relationship between theory and practice in psychotherapy. At the Portland Psychotherapy Clinic, Brian is also involved in research in the use of psychedelics for the treatment of mental health problems. He co-hosts the Altered States of Context podcast about topics related to the intersection between psychedelics and psychotherapy. Nathan Gates is a self-employed licensed psychotherapist and co-host of Altered States of Context. In all professional endeavors, he seeks to help people make sense of their lives in ways that allow them to experience life richly, meaningfully, and honestly. In the therapy office on the podcast while speaking and writing. Nathan is passionate about conversations and ideas that integrate various aspects of the human experience to create a sense of wholeness and coherence. He's also a regenerative cattle farmer, carefully managing pastures to increase biodiversity in and above the soil. This helps cultivate a steady sense of awe and perplexity at the endless adaptability and resilience of ecological systems. Nathan lives with his wife and two children on their farm in rural West Central Illinois. Welcome, you two. I'm so glad to have you here
2: thanks for having us. It's good to be here.
3: So I want to start by maybe clearing up some misconceptions about psychedelics. I think for years, like maybe decades even, if we hear about acid or LSD, at least for me, Generation X, I think there's this instant image of someone jumping out a three-story window, right? Like losing control and jumping out of a window. And I'm curious you know, historically, where did this kind of, you know, this misconception or other misconceptions about psychedelics come from? And like, why are these medications so controversial? Nate, do you want to start?
2: Sure. So you have to go back, I think, well, the short story, I think there's a short and a long version here. The shortest version goes back to, you know, American political culture in the 1960s. The longer version involves maybe a distrust in um, Western civilization of altered states of consciousness generally, but I think more specifically and more directly, the short version is that, you know, the 1960s happened and it was a time of incredible cultural upheaval and LSD in particular, but, you know, also mescaline and psilocybin and other, what we refer to as classical psychedelics had been used for 30, 40 years By like the intelligentsia, you know, elite writers was starting to be used medically and by psychiatrists was really being viewed and used as a very interesting uh, way to explore the human experience. And in the mid 60s, you know, famously with the Beatles, of course, and then, of course, throughout the entire counterculture, you know, LSD very much became associated with the hippies because it was, it was accurately associated with hippies mm-hmm. and started to really rattle the cages, I guess, of what, you know, we might call the established order became very much viewed as a threat because it, you know, associated with the anti-war movement, uh, sexual revolution, and just so much of the, you know, incredible social upheaval of the time. And so it was viewed. And in fact, there's, I forget the man's name. He was a, um, advisor, uh, and, a Member of the Nixon administration was it Ehrlichman? Is that we can look that up later, I guess. But there's a quote years later that he said, you know, of the Nixon administration strategy at the time when they made LSD against the law, which was essentially saying, you know, we can't make it against the law to be a hippie. We can't make it against the law to be black, but we can um, make the drugs that are associated with them highly prohibited. And then we can use that prohibition to disrupt those communities, arrest people, and essentially, you know, practice repression. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that's pretty much what his quote said. And he he said, you know, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we knew that, but that wasn't the point. The point was social control. So it was a very explicit statement of, we are going to use this drug war to try to control dissidents. You know, it was a very direct statement of that from the very top. And that is sort of where I think the propaganda against these classical psychedelics took root. It was an incredibly successful propaganda campaign um, and an incredibly uh, successful suppression campaign of speech, of scientific research. Scientific research was going really, really fast towards... About until about 1970 when this was, I don't remember specifically when that law was passed, at which point the science was absolutely silenced. And you know, it became just a career suicide to even try to study this stuff anymore, unless you were proving how bad it was for you. That was okay. But to actually research it and to take it seriously was um, cut off and dissidents were, v- were very much excluded from the academy and, and harassed. And it was a kind of a wildly successful propaganda campaign against these substances.
3: And up until that point, so if I'm understanding correctly, essentially conservative politicians were probably threatened by the use of these drugs by certain communities. And making the use of these drugs against the law essentially controls the people that are using those. But up until that point, the research that did exist had impressive results. I mean, you know, this is something I don't know well, but I'd like to hear from you guys. You know, it's my understanding that the outcomes for drug and alcohol addiction, the use of LSD specifically, I think, or maybe it's psilocybin, but the use of psychedelics for drug and alcohol addiction had far better results than anything that we use today for substance use conditions. Is that, is that right, Brian?
1: Yeah, the early body of research was substantial. Uh, there was an estimate of over a 1,000 papers published on psychedelic-assisted therapy. Uh, there were major conferences. I think it's something like around 40,000 patients were treated with LSD psychotherapy for substance abuse. So this wasn't just a couple of studies. This was a significant body of research that, as Nate mentioned, was gaining momentum. And you know, these early studies, we can look back and, and see that they weren't as methodologically rigorous as our current research. So it's hard to draw conclusions, but certainly they were pointing to the potential of using psychedelics in conjunction with therapy for treating a variety of mental health issues.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
3: So so let's talk a little bit about that, but I'm realizing before we do that, we should probably define what a psychedelic is. So maybe if you want to define that term and then tell us which drugs fall under that label of psychedelic.
2: Psychedelic is a term that was coined, I think in the 50s, by a conversation between Humphrey Osmond and Aldous Huxley. And the name of the word, it means literally mind manifesting. So mind manifesting meaning making sort of the internal visible. And there's like the classical psychedelics, which are ones that tend to behave at least similarly. And in that category, you have LSD, uh, psilocybin, mescaline are, are the main ones. And then, you know, there's DMT, which is a psychedelic that operates a little differently. It's a short-term trip, very intense, but short-term. Ayahuasca would fit, I think, in the classical psychedelic rubric. And then you have what some people call an empathogen or an intactogen, which is MDMA, which is often put under psychedelics. It's included in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, but there's real differences, I think, between the way that ecstasy operates and the classical psychedelics. So when you talk about the classical psychedelics, you're talking about basically LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, ayahuasca, and they kind of have a characteristic trip that often includes mystical experiences. That's sort of a very common core of that experience.
3: And for anyone who doesn't know, psilocybin is also known as magic mushrooms or mushrooms, and mm-hmm. MDMA is ecstasy or Molly. So there's a lot of different names for these substances. I probably don't know the names of any of the rest of them. <laughs> but as far as some of the more the more well-known ones. And so historically, evidence was accumulating for their success. We talked a little bit about how this got derailed in the 60s. Any thoughts on what has led to this more recent uptick in psychedelics being studied again for therapeutic processes,
1: Brian? That's a great question. I think you know history will you know, be written about that. But uh, I, the, a couple of things that come to mind. One is the dogged perseverance of people who are passionate about the use of psychedelics. Namely, I'm thinking of Rick Doblin and, and his work at MAPS. You know, Rick basically studied. Government and studied the FDA in order to be able to figure out how to get permission to study MDMA again. So, you know, his organization, formed in I think 84 or 85, had been working tirelessly to continue this research. I think changes in neuroimaging, so advancements in technology to take a look at the brain under different states. Of psychedelics sort of began to open the door of re-examining or loosening uh, restrictions on psychedelic research, and I would say you know some of the early studies were uh, very convincing. Like the early data is very promising in our more recent psychedelic renaissance, and I think just general changes in drug attitudes, not only in the public but also in folks in positions of power at organizations like the FDA who are a little bit more willing to give this a second shot. So I think it's a bunch of factors coming together. And, and you know, the, the popular media, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, you know, it's it's a kind of a hot topic right now it's in mainstream media it's on tv it's in you know netflix so people are being exposed to it more often now and all of this is contributing to what's being called the psychedelic renaissance
3: yeah how to change your mind is exactly how i got um interested in this you know this was an area i really knew next to nothing about and i'm not sure what even made me pick up the book. Um, but I, I listened to the audiobook and just found it fascinating and compelling. And it's a book, you know, he's a journalist. And so I think he does a good job of presenting all of the angles in a fairly non-biased way. Um, so we'll link to that book in our show notes, if anybody wants to check that out, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Nate, did you want to add something?
2: Well, I think that just as a, you know, an adjunct to what Brian was saying, I think a, a huge part is that there are a lot of um, people who were coming of age in the 1960s who sort of were involved, who kind of had to see the, the research stopped, who saw that cultural moment kind of shut everything down. But those people then went on to have careers and become embedded in institutions. That That wasn't the case in 1960. You didn't have higher-ups embedded in certain institutions who were sympathetic. And you know, I think now there are a lot of people who are you know running laboratories and in positions of power who had some experience of the power of psychedelics and are pretty sympathetic, and so could kind of greenlight things. When you know, in 1960, I think the powers that be were very universally like, "Well, we need to shut this down. This is dangerous." Mm-hmm. And so now there's a lot of people in those kind of positions can be like, "Well, actually, let's let let's let's look into this a little bit."
3: Yeah. So you just said, the, you know, these things are dangerous. That's a question I had too is, you know, what do we know about how safe these substances are?
1: It's a great question. I think psychedelics tend to either be demonized or idealized. They're either the most dangerous thing that. That we're going to make you go crazy. Kind of as you alluded to all these myths, or they're the cure all. They're going to make all my depression go away. They're going to solve all my problems. And I think what's missing is a more accurate understanding of what the risks and benefits are. So, you know, for the classical psychedelics and it differs by different substances, but they're mostly physiologically safe. There's, there's, for example, psilocybin is rated in, in several studies as one of the safest compounds. It doesn't have any cardiovascular risks and so on. You know, MDMA has some cardiovascular risk because it's an amphetamine-like substance, and and so there are some physical. Uh, potential dangers right? associated, I think the, the biggest risk is a psychological risk. And mostly that occurs when they're taken in an uncontrolled set or setting, meaning that a person takes them, doesn't really know what they're getting into, doesn't know what to expect, doesn't realize that psychedelics can really make us confront, or I should say help us confront, things we've been avoiding difficult, painful emotions, problems in our lives. And when that's done in a therapeutic container, like the way it's done in the trials, you know, we can help a person navigate those challenges. But if you're not expecting those challenges to come up and you're just expecting, you know, this, this positive, blissful experience, you're going to react with more distress and that it can be harmful. And, and I think part of what psychedelics are helpful with is shaking things up they can really help us get unstuck and see things from a different perspective. And it's sort of like, be careful what you wish for. The new perspective that you get might be overwhelming. It might be hard to go back to your regular life or your relationships or your job when you're seeing things in a a very different way. And again, if that's handled with caution and care and sensitivity, then that could be navigated more successfully. But if a person isn't prepared for that, they're, they're more likely to really be harmed by that.
0: Diana. And if you're a healthcare worker or a mental health therapist, you may find that some of your clients are caught in a tug of war with food and weight. They battle their body image and eating and are entangled in preoccupation about weight or feeling stuck in cycles of rigid dieting, overeating, shame, or hopelessness. I'm going to be offering a live online webinar with PESI continuing education on using ACT for eating and body image concerns. And then I hope you'll join me on Friday, December 3rd, 2021 from nine, a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. You can learn more through my events page at drdianahill.com. Hope to see you there.
3: So you mentioned set and setting, and those are two words you always hear when you you know start learning about psychedelics. So can you define set and setting and talk about how that's important to a psychedelic experience?
2: Yes. So that's a really important question. The term set and setting was coined by Timothy Leary, you know, back in the, in the sixties during this sort of wave of interest when, when Timothy Leary, you know, there's the very huge stories there. That's, that, that's a whole can of worms, but essentially it's like, um, you know, he's one of the the main reasons that this spilled out of the academy and into the culture at large, but he coined this term set and setting, and it stuck. And it's stuck because it's incredibly useful the way I think of set and setting is essentially as a contextualist, as an ACT therapist, it's context. Set and setting is context. That's what that means. It means the context, both of your internal sort of mindset coming in to the experience, uh, you, you're the sum total of your expectations, your experiences, You know what you are afraid is going to happen, what you hope might happen. So your s- mindset going in. Um and the setting that you're in, you know, so so the internal and external context and the external context being the type of uh, environment you're in. You know, are you outside <laughs> under the stars by a campfire. Are you inside in a nice dimly lit room? Are you at a party? Are you at a concert? Are you with people who are friendly? Are you people who seem to not know what's going on or loud and drunk? All these things make a tremendous difference, um, in what kind of experience you end up having, and so controlling to the degree that you can control the environment that you're going to be in and and to a lesser extent the the I, th- I think you can have less control over your mindset you have somewhat but you can really tightly control the environment you're going to be in and then somewhat what you expect and, and how you approach the experience is tremendously important. So as contextualists you know if you're if you're a contextual therapist at all, this really should ring a bell and just be like oh yeah of course that's 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 really important. Right.
3: So so what do we know now? Like, what is the current state of science in terms of which of these – do you guys prefer – do you call them drugs or medications? I've sort of – it seems like there's kind of this shift to to referring to psychedelics as medicine to try to undo a little bit of the the misconception when it's called a drug, you know, this thought about it being an illicit substance. Do you, do you have a preference for terminology?
2: I prefer to think of it. I mean, I'm fine with drugs. It's literally a drug, and there's nothing wrong with drugs. Drugs are useful. We use them all the time. Drugs are wonderful human inventions. So I think calling them a drug is a perfectly acceptable thing to do. I think that what the way I really think about it is that it is an experience induced by a drug, but it's the experience that's important. You know, and, you know, that is an experience that cross-culturally, there are other technologies and ways of producing them. I think psychedelic drugs are uh, the most effective, most efficient by far that we know of, you know, especially in this, in, you know, in this cultural context. But really, we're talking about this experience, and it's an experience that a person has, right? Like an, a phenomenological experience that a human has that then changes their perspective and, and, and creates new learning, You know, that that's so that's what it is. So like, I think sometimes when you think of a drug, it's like, well, a drug manipulates something and causes a change in biologically. And then, you know, it's different. And to me, it's about the experience and about the learning.
3: Okay. so then what do we know in terms of the current state of evidence of how effective these experiences or these drug induced experiences, how effective are psychedelics um, at treating mental health issues, and do we know much about which drugs are most effective for treating which kinds of symptoms or problems?
1: We know a little bit. So what we know is that there are two main areas where the most research has been conducted. That is MDMA for PTSD and psilocybin for depression uh, or, and or anxiety. So for MDMA, a phase three results were just released earlier this year, showing that 67% of participants did not meet criteria for PTSD after uh, treatment with MDMA-assisted therapy. And for psilocybin, similarly showing results that are somewhere around two to three times as effective as our traditional therapy and traditional medications. So it's it's important to to, to use the caveat that these are very tightly controlled early studies, still with just a couple hundred participants. And there's enough research at this point to suggest that those findings are holding up. The FDA granted what's called breakthrough therapy status to both MDMA for PTSD. And psilocybin for depression, which is kind of like a fast-tracking status given to new therapies that are showing great promise. We'll know a lot more about what other conditions these um, drugs or medicines might be useful for and which ones they might not be useful for. But we're really only beginning to scratch the surface in terms of understanding that. So for example, there's a trial now um, looking at psilocybin for OCD and so on. So we'll, we'll know a lot more within the next five or 10 years. Part of the obstacle is that the NIH has not funded any research with psychedelics. All of that research has been funded by private donors, which is a much smaller resource. But earlier this, I think it was late summer or early fall in 2021, the NIH finally funded some research for psychedelics. So that could be a major turning point if those big money grants could be used to continue to investigate psychedelics.
3: And so, does this seem like it's also still politically dependent? So, kind of depending on who's at the helm of the NIH or some of these grant granting bodies, you know, is there still kind of a political discrimination, a fear of not wanting to fund these studies despite some of this really promising research?
2: Probably just appreciate for a second what Brian just said, because it's, it's, it blows my mind, right. That just to see in the last, you know, 15 years, what's happened to go from like completely laughable, the idea that the NIH would, would fund research into psychedelics. In fact, the idea of psychedelics research was still not happening much 15, 20 years ago to that being funded this summer. So I just want to take a second, appreciate how like mind blowing that is to me. Um, You know, a lot of this stuff continued across at least the FDA process and the DEA, you know, allowing studies to happen, continued across administrations from the Obama administration through the Trump administration into the Biden administration. So no one politically is coming and at least interfering with this process yet. No one's kind of bringing the hammer down and saying like, whoa, that's against the law. Stop that. So that, that hammer hasn't dropped, you know, across various administrations. It will be really interesting to see about funding. I mean, this is sort of like a very, I think, big seal to have broken that the NIH has actually funded s- psychedelic research. So I'm curious. I don't know how that how that will play out. I'm, I'm sure that there hasn't been, I haven't observed much in the way of backlash yet. I say yet, kind of because I think there's a part of many of us who have been involved with this and pay close attention to it and care about it, that just kind of in the back of our mind expects that to happen but maybe not, you know, I I think it's, I'm real curious to see.
3: Well, and when we're talking about FDA and NIH and DEA, these are all United States government agencies. And it's my understanding that some of this research has been, it's been a little bit more liberal in other countries. Is that right? I mean, it's, it's legal in certain countries. Has research gone on in, in other countries that have a different history from the United States?
1: Yeah, there's research that's been conducted in like Israel for MDMA for PTSD. You know, some of the psilocybin research is from the UK. You know, Portugal has very liberal drug policy and harm reduction stances there. And so, you know, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of the sort of West, what we would consider Western countries are more similar to the US, where it's only been recent that they've been opening up to this kind of research too.
2: The U.S. drug war um, has been very successfully inflicted on the rest of the world. You know, the, it's a, it's an mm-hmm. innovation of the U.S., our political system, the, the idea of the drug war. And, and we kind of very effectively enforced it on the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And so research stopped everywhere. It was stopped using diplomatic tools, using, you know, the United right. States tools of state and manipulation, you know, like effectively impose the drug war on the rest of the world.
3: So we had really promising results way back when, though those studies weren't as rigorously controlled as studies we do now. We saw the research into these drugs suppressed over the last several decades. The research has reemerged in more rigorously controlled studies. Those are still relatively new. So I imagine we don't have much longitudinal data yet. So this question might also be premature. But what do we know about the mechanism of action? Like, so for listeners who have never done a psychedelic or all they have, or the LSD makes people jump out of windows, you know, kind of preconception about them, what exactly do we think is happening for MDMA to result in 67% of people no longer having a PTSD diagnosis or psilocybin helping someone no longer feel depressed? Do, can we answer that question yet?
1: I would say no, we don't, we can't yet. There are some early contenders and some some early evidence, but all of pretty much all of the early, these initial trials that we're talking about have just studied outcome, right? They haven't investigated mechanisms of change. You know, so for MDMA, we there's theories, there's the maps model which has some ideas, but from an evidence-based perspective, we we really don't know and uh, there might be a little bit more evidence for what Nate mentioned, the mystical experience as being important with psilocybin in that some of the research out of Johns Hopkins with uh, the Griffith study in 2016 showed that the, the larger uh, mystical experience the participants had, that predicted greater reductions in both depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of different possibilities other than that that could explain why psychedelics are beneficial.
3: And so when you say mystical experience, can you define what that is?
1: It
2: includes a number of personal uh, experiences, you know, such as ineffability. It's very hard to describe uh, a sense of oneness, uh, a sense of wonder and openness. There's a there. I mean, there's a scale. There's I'm not remembering a lot of the aspects off the top of my head here. But, you know, they're characteristics that revolve around sort of a boundary disillusion between self and other kind of a, a sense of universal oneness and just really hard to describe so it's it's getting around mm-hmm. somehow our language faculty because you know it's it's yeah. a extremely people always or very often i should say have a hard time putting that that to words and it, it mirrors and it's it's very similar to in fact it's indistinguishable from a mystical experience that isn't derived from psychedelics. So if you have a mystical experience that's derived some somewhere else, it's it's you can't distinguish it at mm-hmm. least from the outside. There's not a way that, you know, empirically it can be distinguished from one that's induced by psychedelics. And to offer, I guess, my speculation on your last question, you know, regarding mechanism, because there's you know different thoughts about that. You know, maybe you know, looking into the brain and neurologically. You know whether that's the mechanism. I tend to, I think, because I'm a therapist and I'm a contextualist. You know, I tend to you know think in terms of that. And like I said earlier, what we're talking about is an experience that induces new learning. And so I think it's it's because we learn, right? Like that's the mechanism of action is that it helps us learn, and it helps us learn by helping us to take different perspectives, by you know seeing our life more flexibly by relating to our thoughts differently, by becoming more in contact with the present moment, by not being so imprisoned by language. And I don't know if this is sounding familiar at all, but for any ACT therapist, I think this would sound extremely familiar. I think that the, the mechanisms of change in a psychedelic experience overlap extremely neatly. And so that's why, well, there's not um, necessarily empirical support. Well, there is some empirical support for the ACT model. And I think that this overlays really, really beautifully. And, you know, people come out of that experience often describing a sense of, of universal love and, and having a better sense of what's important to them, you know, their values. So I, I think that the overlap is incredible. And that that's my personal informed speculation, I guess, as to what the mechanism might be.
3: Well, it's a hypothesis that, you know, it's an empirical question that hopefully people will be testing over the the upcoming years. I've also heard, this might have been a Michael Pollan's book, that there's some hypothesis around almost like dissolution of ego, which maybe is kind of similar in act to self as context versus self as content. Can you say something about that?
1: Yeah. So. This is more for the classical psychedelics than MDMA. We don't see the ego dissolution phenomena as much with MDMA, but there it's like stepping outside of the ego, you know, to use that language, or stepping outside of the conceptualized self and seeing being able to see that for what it is, first of all, but then also have these experiences of freshness. And if you think about like a someone who's depressed and they're, you know, a person who's like severely depressed is very stuck in the same mind loops, right? They're in the same beliefs, the same patterns. So if we can sort of give them this experience, maybe it's the turning off of all of that top-down stuff that then allows them to have a couple of hours where they're outside of that. And that, that learning, as Nate mentioned, can then generalize to when they're not in a psychedelic state.
3: Right. So to clarify for for some of our listeners, we talk about ACT on this podcast all the time, but we haven't talked a lot about conceptualized self or the role of language. So really simply, and and you guys add to this if you feel like I'm missing anything, but when we talk about language being problematic, what we're talking about is our tendency to rely on rules and judgments and assumptions and predictions rather than relying on our in-the-moment actual experience and how that can be problematic in terms of engaging in values-driven behavior. And for conceptualized self, it's sort of a fancy word. Really simply put is basically the story that you tell yourself about yourself. So anytime you're starting a sentence with, I am, you're tipi- or I am not, um, you know, you're typically getting into conceptualized self. And this can be problematic if those stories are driving your behavior and that behavior is not values-consistent.
2: Yes, that's a perfect lead-in, too, to what I, I was about to say, which is essentially, you know, we have that conceptualized self, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, how we view ourselves, you know, that's with us from the moment we start learning anything, you know, we start to learn about who we are and define who we are in the world. And our language does the same thing, like we, we develop these aso- patterns of associations, you know, of, you no, know, this is related to that, and that is related to this, and I relate to these things in this certain way, and so we have our entire learning history of all those patterns of experiences and that shapes how we experience every moment of every day as humans you know you walk into a room and the things that you see are filtered through what you expect because you've been training your whole life to see things a certain way and i think what psychedelics do is they just flip that right off just flips it off mm-hmm. your learning conditioning is you know that that's just off and instead of seeing through the filter that you see through all day every day that you're awake and alert that's not there anymore. And so you see everything in a new way. You see yourself in a new way from a completely fresh perspective. You can actually look at yourself. I was talking to a a client of mine the other day, and it's not a person who is, you know, I don't do psychedelic therapy at all. I just, when I talk to anyone, I do a drug history. And if they tell me they use psychedelics, I ask them about it because people I have found want to talk about it and are really appreciative of having someone who will listen to them seriously. You know, and it's like that person might have a really low sense of self-worth. And what's a lot easier, it's paraphrasing here, someone would say it's a lot easier to see things in the world that are beautiful when you're not busy thinking about what a piece of shit you are. You know, mm-hmm. like this is a, like a theme, like a thing that people might say, you know, like to be relieved of that sense of burden of carrying around your ideas of yourself and the world and just being able to freshly experience the world around you.
3: Yeah. That makes so much sense. So this might also be premature in terms of you know what we know scientifically, but there are therapies that only involve medication treatment. So for example, you know we had a study going on here in San Diego of ketamine for depression, which ketamine isn't a psychedelic, but you know formerly thought of as a club drug that is also emerging now as a, a therapeutic treatment. But this study was looking solely at the ketamine and there was no therapeutic component involved whatsoever. So what do we know about treatment using psychedelics alone versus treatment using psychedelics in combination with psychotherapy?
1: Yeah, interesting. ketamine is interesting in that there's two ways of using it. One is more like just a traditional medication where uh patient receives an IV treatment, there's no therapy, but there's also ketamine-assisted psychotherapy or CAP, which is using therapeutic support along with that experience. I don't think there's any research on just using psychedelics without therapy. I can't imagine just giving somebody like a high dose of psilocybin and Putting them off in a room that feels like that'd be a bad idea. So, you know, I think that's what's super interesting about psychedelic assisted therapy is it's, it, it doesn't fit our, our mold of treatment. We have these like, it's a therapy or it's a drug. And this is some like hybrid combination that's new. And so it, it kind of naturally then disrupts how we think about therapy or we think about drugs. We compartmentalize them in this particular way. And I think psychedelic-assisted therapy kind of naturally disrupts the traditional medical view uh, because it's like, well, is it the drug effect? Is it the experience? Is it the therapy? And maybe we can't really separate those out. You
2: know, I don't think I'm in a position to coin terms. I don't know that anybody's going to coin terms uh, <laughs> that I use, but I think the right term for this is it's an experiential pharmacotherapy.
3: Hmm. I like it. And there are even different ways to, to do this, right? There's like the, the Hubbard room where somebody is in a small contained space, laying on a bed, having maybe music on and... Blindfold and there's a an aide, an assistant. I don't know what you call it with them, versus you know like being outdoors in nature with a with a guide. Is that is that right? Or if it's psychotherapy, is it kind of always like in a therapy room?
1: What we've learned from the 60s is the environment is really important. Again, setting setting. So the the model is you know in a comfortable place with two therapists usually with eye shades and music, uh, music that's not, doesn't have language, a lot of language or is unfamiliar, particular type of music. And this encouragement that in MDMA therapy and psilocybin therapy to spend a lot of time inside. So with the eye shades on, just kind of having your experience. That's the model that's emerged. And I think there's a lot of wisdom from that, but I think there's probably other ways to do psychedelics. So for example, a lot of people feel like, how you know, like psilocybin should be done in outdoors with, with the mm-hmm. environment and, you know, kind of reject that that model of being inside with eye shades. You know, a lot of traditional cultures, though, psilocybin was, you know, psilocybin ceremonies happened at night in the dark. So there, there's, you know, there's, I think there's going to be, uh, as this becomes more popular, there will be Um, many different ways to, that we're going to find that it could be helpful.
3: Mm -hmm. Right. Nate?
1: I would add to it that, you know, uh, like
2: Brian said, we've kind of settled at least for now sort of on this, this, this model of basically two therapists and or guides or sitters or people use various terms for one patient Personally, I really, really am excited to see more work and more looking into group models. Um, that's, I, I I think that that's a great idea, you know, having uh, multiple participants at once. You know, if, if I were just talking about my ideal scenario, it would probably be a group model taking place outdoors. But, you know, of course, that's not mm-hmm. – we don't have the empiricism for that. That's just sort of my intuition yes. and what I would think uh, that that's sort of where I go with it. But I think that all these things can be tested.
3: And I think the chances are it likely will move in that direction if this ever really becomes adopted as kind of a regular part of practice from a strict resource standpoint. Mm -hmm. Two therapists to one individual client for long periods of time Is never going to happen. Like you won't see that in private practice, except for the very rich who can afford to pay for that. So, you know, there's a lot to do in terms of just gathering evidence about efficacy and mechanisms. But ultimately, if this hopefully ends up being applied in, you know, more everyday kinds of contexts, there's going to have to be a way to do this that works from a resource standpoint. I mean, when Edna Foa rolled out prolonged exposure and it's a 90 minute session just that you know one therapist one client for 90 minutes instead of 50 minutes became a big obstacle and you know she did studies to see if this can be done in a 50 minute model and sure enough it can so you know i think being able to respond to what's going to be workable out in the real world is something that's going to have to be coming and probably group models will, will have to be part of that so i know we're we're running out of time here i have two other quick questions. So Brian, I know you're working on a study of MDMA for social phobia up in Portland at the clinic, which is really cool. And you've mentioned MAPS a couple of times, which is kind of the most well-known organization at the forefront of doing these studies. What does MAPS stand for?
1: MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies.
3: There we go. So if we have listeners who want to participate in these studies or therapies where they're available or we have clinicians who want to get training for providing psychedelic assisted therapy, where can they go?
1: So for r- right now, you know, we can I can share a link with you. Actually, it's on the MAPS website of current trials and and what where they're recruiting. It is unfortunately hard to get into these these studies so just to set that as an expectation you know they accept maybe 20 to 50 people or something so they get hundreds of applications
3: well we all as former or current researchers know how hard it can be to get study participants so i think it says something that they're not having a hard time getting people to participate yes so i think you know when nate was saying earlier that there's been kind of a shift in attitude about these drugs you know from a sociocultural standpoint i think that may be a data point right there that lots of people want to participate in these studies.
1: Absolutely. There's there's a high interest and and the the other part that you mentioned there's a high interest amongst professionals and students. How do I get involved? How do I what you know what kind of training should I look for? And I would say right now we don't really know. There's because psychedelic assisted therapy is not you know, being practiced yet, we, we don't know, except in the case of, of MDMA, like you'll need to go through MAPS training to be a MAPS therapist to be able to provide that at least initially. But there's a lot of training programs out there more and more every month that are offering CEs or certificates in this area. So you can. You know there, there are definitely places to get more information. Uh, there are, are companies like Fluence who do really good evidence based trainings for psychedelic assisted therapy and topics related to psychedelics. Polaris Insight is and in, uh, they do a lot of work with ketamine. There's uh, Prati. We can share links with your listeners.
3: Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll put links in the show notes to all of those. And for any of our listeners who are members of the Association of Behavioral and Contextual Sciences, there's a SIG, a special interest group for people who are interested in psychedelic-assisted therapy. So that's also a way to get connected to
2: the community.
3: Nate, did you want to add anything?
2: Well, shameless self-promotion. You can also listen to Altered States of Context, which is a podcast Brian and I do about this very topic. So- we cover a lot a lot of what we talked about today in much more depth cuz we have, you know, time to talk about nothing but that. I also if it's okay, there's one other aspect we didn't cover today that I would like to throw in if it's all right. Please do. We we touched on the drug war a little bit, but I wanted to touch on that a little more because it's really important in the context of this conversation. We're interested in this medically. We're I think um curious you know, many people have used this illicitly, have experimented and have done so without consequences. But the consequences of the drug war are real and ongoing and have been particularly brutal on communities of color. And, you know, it, it's an incredible human rights violation. Our drug laws are. The fact that people are imprisoned for using these is, you know, in my view, a, a terrible human rights violation that is ongoing and is extends far beyond just psychedelics. So I think... It's kind of our duty, I feel this way personally, to at the same time talking about psychedelics and psychedelic medicine and the promise that it can hold for, for all of us, especially in the context of I think a lot of people are going to make a lot of money from this, to also talk about the damage that the drug war has done and continues to do. I think you could almost feel like it's over sometimes. If you listen to a lot of these conversations, you could, you could almost assume that the drug war was a thing of the past. It's not happening, but it is happening. And people are still going to jail for this. Communities are still being disrupted by our oppressive laws. And so I think we all have a duty to talk about that and to be aware of that in this context. So thanks. Yeah,
3: I think it would be, I think we could do another whole entire podcast episode yes. on that On that alone. It's, it's really complex and really harmful. I, I agree. Thank you for mentioning that. Well, you guys, this has been so interesting. I find this really fascinating and so incredibly exciting to see, you know, how much is on the horizon and how cool for you guys to be part of something that's like so cutting edge and there's still so much to learn. So thank you so much for sharing this with us today. It was, it was wonderful to have you here.
2: Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been a real, real, real pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon.
4: You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you
3: can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller.
4: This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.